Our gospel reading for the second Sunday of Advent is Matthew chapter 3. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. For when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. And he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks for your word. And we pray that we would place ourselves under its counsels today, that we would submit to it, that we would hear it and we would obey it. Father, loosen my tongue so that I can articulate these things clearly. Deliver me from error. Deliver us all from distraction. And may we uh, spend this time guided by your Holy Spirit into truth. And it is in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen. People of God, as you all know, just a few weeks ago uh, when Hurricane Matthew was blowing through, the Lord decided to use that event to lay over a 65-foot white oak tree in my backyard, mercifully missing, it, hitting anything on the way down. It just, it just laid down, and uh, it took a dozen of you or so to help me get that out of, out of my yard, and I'm still very thankful for that. But as we were working on this massive organism that God created, uh, I was in awe of this enormous thing. I, I couldn't even get my arms around the trunk of it. And as the guys with chainsaws were cutting it up in chunks, we were cutting it in chunks that a grown man couldn't carry by himself. Uh, we had to use wheelbarrows and, and dollies to, to, to pick these things up. Uh, trees are these incredible creatures that combine sunlight and water and carbon dioxide and nutrients for the soil, and they turn all of this stuff into wood, this dense, versatile uh, substance that we can use for so many purposes. Trees store up the energy of the sun so that we can chop them up and release that energy in our homes, or we can uh, build things out of it. This tree that was uh, fallen in my yard had been standing for decades. I tried to count the rings at at the trunk, at the base, and I got to almost 70 before I gave up, and they were too close together to count. So if I was counting correctly, though, this tree had been alive longer than my parents. It had started growing sometime around the end of World War II. That tree had been standing for 25 years when man walked on the moon. This thing had been around for a very 
long time, for decades, and then I come along and it falls down on my watch. You know, what, you know I, I can't even take care of a tree. It just falls over. When, when Tim cut through the base of the tree, though, um, near the stump, we found that it was significantly rotten right down to the, right down to the core. Decay had set in, and, and its time was up. It was coming down. It had to come down. It was going to come down sooner or later. So no matter how tall it was, no matter how stately it was or useful it was, the decay on the inside spelled its doom. And now today, this massive, mighty, glorious tree is cut up, and some of it's in your backyard, and some of it's in your woodshed, and some of it's in the landfill, and, and it's all spread out all over Wake County, and it's ready to be thrown into the fire or chopped into mulch. I was thinking about that tree a lot as I read our lectionary readings for this Lord's Day because trees and branches and axes keep coming up in these various readings today. Trees, as you know, are fixtures in the Bible. Trees are popular metaphors throughout the scriptures for the righteous. The, the blessed man is a faithful uh, tree. The, the faithful trees, the fruitful trees throughout the scriptures are contrasted with fruitless trees, with the brambles, the chaff that gets cut up, strewn around, and thrown into the fire. You all know Psalm 1, where the blessed man is like a tree planted by the rivers and brings forth fruit. What are the ungodly like? The ungodly are like the chaff that is blown away by the wind. In Isaiah 61, Messiah comes, he delivers his people, and his people are called oaks of righteousness. In Judges, Jotham, the son of Gideon, remember, tells this parable where he likens the faithful, hardworking, common people. He calls them uh, fruitful fig trees and fruitful olive trees. But the worthless, unproductive tyrant who is only hungry for power, he's like the thorny bramble bush. So trees are all over the scriptures, faithful trees and fruitful trees, and then scrubby bushes and brambles and chaff are contrasted throughout uh, with, with them. Trees are full of powerful imagery in the Bible. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a tree that starts out as the smallest seed, but then grows into this mighty tree until all the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Trees feed us with their fruit. Their leaves are medicinal. Their shade is, is glorious when the sun is beating down. They give rest and respite to man and animal. And, and the, the canopy of the trees remind us of the canopy of the heavens. And by the very height, they point us up to the heavens and remind us of how small we are. So the righteous are like trees in all of those senses. The righteous are fruitful. They feed, they feed the people. The righteous are like shade. They give rest. The righteous have, have healing in their leaves. They, they are medicinal and they, they save and they deliver. The righteous point us up to the heavens. Every year, as long as I can remember, every time we put up the Christmas tree in our house has become kind of a routine for me to ask my kids, okay, what are the importance of trees in the Bible? And I do it every year, as my son said on the car this morning, he said, why do we put up a Christmas tree? I'm like, well, you don't remember this conversation we had last year. Well, we're about to have it again. So trees are so predominant in the Bible that God is always saving his people. He's always delivering and instructing his people by means of wood. 
Noah's Ark, Moses' staff, Aaron's rod, the Ark of the Covenant. He meets his people at trees. And of course, man is ultimately, he's plunged into death and he plunges the world into death by what happens at a tree in a garden. And the world is redeemed and the world is restored to fellowship with God at a tree in a garden. We fell at a tree in a garden and man is restored at a tree in a garden. And while man was forbidden to touch the, fir the fruit on the first tree, you must taste of the fruit on the, on the second tree. You must eat the fruit of the second tree if you are to have eternal life. And that, that second tree is the cross and the fruit hanging on that tree is Jesus, who you must taste in order to live. So with all of this tree imagery in the background and this tree symbolism, we come to our readings for the second Sunday of Advent. And there are a couple of things we need to watch for, as I said a few minutes ago. Across all of our readings, there's the cutting down of old trees. And there's the growth of a new branch. There's the planting of a new tree, a new stem, which blesses the nations with unity and peace. The nations are brought together under the shadow, under the shade of this new tree that's growing up. This new stem blesses the nations with unity and peace and brings the nations together. Each one of these passages that we read this morning has a reference to the gathering of the Gentiles into the new covenant. So we start with this gospel reading in Matthew that I just read. Every year on this Sunday in Advent, we're directed back to, in our gospel reading, on the second Sunday of Advent, we're directed back to the, the ministry of John the Baptist, which is appropriate because in this season, we are making preparations for all the ways that the Lord comes to us. And so John the Baptist was the man whose job it was to prepare Israel for the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so it's appropriate that we read and reflect each year on the ministry of John the Baptist. But you, you could tell me, you could, you could almost quote uh, the, this passage verbatim. You know, he comes preaching in the wilderness. He preaches a message of repentance and preparation for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And he's baptizing in the Jordan River those who are confessing their sins. Just a quick review of John's ministry. He was the son of a priest. He was the son of Zechariah, who was a priest, which means he has the authority. John the Baptist has the authority to lead in cleansing rituals, in purifications, in, in washings. But as the first prophet sent to Israel in about 400 years, it's notable that John the Baptist does all this work away from the temple. He's away from Jerusalem. He's out at the Jordan River. He's out in the wilderness, which shows you how highly God esteems Jerusalem at this point, how highly he esteems what's going on at the, at the temple. Renewal and cleansing is not going on in there. You have to come out apart from that, come out to the wilderness where John the Baptist is doing the cleansing and the washing. John's ministry is a rejection of the, of the system that's, 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 being perpetuated at the temple in Jerusalem because Jerusalem and Judea have become like a new oppressive Egypt. They're a tree that is rotten. And so like a new Moses, John is calling people to leave that bondage of this new Egypt, leave that bondage, come meet with me out in the wilderness, come camp with me, repent and be cleansed so that with your new Joshua, you can cross the Jordan River again and go conquer the promised land again. 
And, and of course, among those people that John is baptizing are some of the men who become Jesus' apostles. And so, so John, in many ways, is preparing the way of the Lord by preparing the hearts of those men who are then going to follow Jesus back across the Jordan River into the promised land to go reconquer it as the new Joshua and the new tribes, the new 12 tribes of Israel under the new Joshua. But there are signs that this deliverance is going to be even greater than the previous deliverance. This conquest is going to be even better. And some of the things that we see are things we tend to, uh, we, we tend to skim over. Like his diet was locusts and wild honey. What'd you have for breakfast, John? I had these big old grasshoppers. And what'd you eat for lunch? Well, these grasshoppers. That's what I ate. That's what a locust is. It's this big, big grasshopper. Does that sound good to you? We want... Do we have some locusts and wild honey for lunch over here today? Well, that's what John ate. Now, locusts are clean animals. They're clean bugs. They're not unclean bugs. Um, they are clean animals, and he could eat them. But we see locusts throughout the scriptures, don't we? The armies of locusts that, that uh, plague the countryside, that eat the crops, these locusts in the prophets are just precursors to the, to the Gentile armies of, of the conquerors. So, so, so locusts in the Old Testament are eaters. They're destroyers. They're, they're, they're a plague on Egypt, remember. They devour Israel in Joel, where they strip the land of all of the vegetation. So there, there's not even bread because we can't grow anything. There's not any wine because the, uh, the, the vines have been stripped bare. There's no meat because the cattle don't have any, any grass to graze on. The, Locusts have stripped it all. Locusts eat and eat and eat and eat and destroy. And John the Baptist comes and what does he do? He eats the eater. He destroys the destroyer. He consumes the consumer. And in, in addition to that, of course, he, he also eats honey. So he eats the locusts and he eats the honey. Well, honey is always a reference and always reminds us of the, uh, the promised land. Remember that um, this is a land flowing with milk and honey, and honey is everywhere. Samson finds honey in the carcass of a lion. Uh, Jonathan is out with his men, and he just sticks his reed. Honey is flowing on the ground, and, and Jonathan sticks his spear into the ground, and he pulls up a honeycomb, and he snacks on it. Honey is, honey is everywhere. Honey is readily available. So John the Baptist incorporates both. He incorporates this sign and this this. Uh, this symbol of, of the, the good land, the promised land, as well as this symbol, this locust that always stood for judgment and destruction and the invading armies throughout, throughout uh, the, the prophets. So he combines these two things. His ministry and the ministry of Messiah to come is going to bring together both the clean and the unclean, the Jew and the Gentile. Um, uh, locusts are not unclean, but, but he's going to bring together um, both the, uh, the people and the nations, the people of Israel and the nations. Another hint, if you look at his clothing, what's he wearing? He's wearing a camel's hair cloak and a leather belt. A camel is an unclean animal, but he's, it's, it's cinched around his waist with a leather uh, belt, as we assume that leather means uh, some, uh, the hide of a cow, which, you know, is a clean animal. So, so John the Baptist is wearing together um, this, this mixture of clean and unclean animal products. Uh, the only other guy that we read about, I think the only other person who wears a leather belt that we see it mentioned is Elijah. Somebody says, who came here uh, in 2 Kings chapter 1, I think, and, so, and, and, and the, uh, 
the, the minion of the king says, oh, it was this crazy guy with, he was hairy and he was wearing a leather belt. Uh, that's Elijah. You know, it's funny, we, we wear belts all the time, but I think they were uh, somewhat of, a, of an oddity. Uh, for them to point it out and for them to remark on it, uh, it's, it seems like it's kind of a, a different odd thing. And, and John the Baptist incorporates both of the, he's got the hairy part down with the hairy uh, camel's cloak and he cinches it with a leather belt. Again, it's pregnant with symbolism that, uh, that John the Baptist is combining these things in such a way that if we're reading carefully, we see him in his person bringing together components of the Gentile world and of the Jewish world. He's combining them together. Just as, you know, clothing is significant. Clothing is relevant. Clothing is not a matter of, you know, uh, is, it's not just this thing you don't, you don't need to think about, especially when it's mentioned in the Bible. As the priest goes into the holy place, what is he wearing on him? He's incorporating all of creation. As the priest appears before God, he's got a wool robe, he's got a linen tunic, and he's got a breastplate filled with all of these various gems, and he's got gold on him as well. So the high priest wears the, the, the mineral, the animal, and the vegetable before him as he appears before God. He brings all of creation before him as he stands before God and makes intercession on behalf of the world. You probably right now, if you think about what have I, what have I got? Well, you probably got some leather, you probably got some animal, you probably got some vegetable, you may have some cotton, you may have you know, a belt buckle or jewelry, you've got mineral. You, you are taking dominion over all of creation even in what you wear. So, so this isn't some odd esoteric thing that I'm pulling out here. This is, this is what, uh, because it's mentioned and because it's referred to, we see this all combined in John's clothing and in his diet. But we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to John the Baptist to check out what he's doing. And he calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them baby snakes. He calls them children of the serpent, essentially. He says, who warned you from the to, to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you to come out here? If you're going to come, you need to come bearing the fruits of repentance. Don't tell me that you have Abraham as your father. God can make these rocks into sons of Abraham. If he wants more children, he could just make more. In fact, that is what God is going to do. He is going to raise up new children of Abraham, not out of those rocks, but, but certainly a new house of Israel built on the rock who is Christ. And, and this is where... John the Baptist gets into this language of axes and trees. Here again what John says. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Of course, he's talking about the ministry of Jesus who is coming Jesus, who's coming to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Jesus is coming, John says, to clean out his threshing floor, which when we studied Ruth over the summer, we saw this threshing floor as a reference to the temple. And uh, what, what Jesus is coming essentially is to clear out the temple, and he does that. This purging of the sanctuary is also referenced back in Psalm 74. And you have to wonder if that Psalm 74 is, is ringing in John's head as he says this. The psalmist in Psalm 74 talks about God's anger and his frustration with his disobedient people and how even the sanctuary of the temple is going to bear the weight of judgment. Now listen to Psalm 74. Men who lift up axes among the thick trees 
um, now break down its carved work all at once with axes and hammers. They set fire to your sanctuary. That's all the way back in, Isaiah, in, in Psalm 74. That is now what is barreling down the tracks for Israel. When John comes on the scene, he rejects the temple and all of its all the stuff that's going on there. And he rejects the city of Jerusalem by coming out to the wilderness and now pronounces judgment on it by saying, Jesus is coming to clean out the threshing floor. He who has ears, let him hear. He's coming to wipe out the, the threshing floor and he's gonna come and, and chop down the unfruitful trees with branches and throw them in. Uh, he's gonna chop down the unfruitful trees with axes and he's gonna throw them in the fire. Well, that's all an echo of Psalm 74. John's message is very clear. The old world with its old ways, the old covenant and its old unfruitful trees that populate it are all about to be chopped down. The coming Messiah is going to pronounce his verdict and he is going to chop down the unfruitful trees. The day of the Lord is coming. He's going to draw near. He's going to fix what's broken. He's going to execute judgment. Oh, those things are out of place. He's going to bless and redeem and restore. And he's going to pull together all these people who are scattered, these people who don't have a name or a nation, these people without a home. And he's going to make them a new nation. He's going to gather them into himself. And he's going to give them his name. And then John says, and the people hearing know what, what God has done before, so what he's saying, you know, this, this is not a, a, a vague, general, pessimistic prediction that the other shoe is going to fall or something bad's going to happen. This is a specific reference to something that has happened before. If we go backwards to Isaiah, 7, uh, uh, Isaiah 11, rather, to our, uh, our lesson reading uh, that we heard earlier, we're confronted again right away in Isaiah 11 with a stump, with a fallen tree, a prophecy that a new tree is going to grow out of the stump of Jesse. A new branch is going to grow out of the roots. And as soon as we see that, what should we ask? Why is Jesse a stump? Why isn't the house of Jesse, why isn't the house of David this big, glorious, beautiful, fruitful tree? <laughs> why, why is it a stump? Why isn't the family line of David uh, glorious uh, and, and sturdy? Well, we have to go back a few verses to chapter 10, because in Isaiah's days, you remember, the Assyrian army is at the doorstep. They're coming to bring down the northern tribes of Israel. God calls in Isaiah 10, God calls Assyria his rod. It's his, uh, it's his belt. It's his, you know, spanking spoon or what he's got. He's about to discipline. He's about to discipline uh, Israel with his rod and his rod has a name on it. The rod's name is Assyria. He's about to use this against them. He also says in chapter 10, the Assyrian army is my axe. He says this in verse 15. Uh, uh, the Assyrian army is my saw. I'm coming to cut down some trees. I'm coming to chop down some unfruitful, rotten trees. And uh, this tree that is rotten with idolatry must come down. So when the judgment day comes, the Lord comes to this generation and he wields Assyria like an ax. And we can pick up in Isaiah 10, if you're following along, Isaiah 10, 33. Behold the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will lop off the bough with terror, those of high stature will be hewn down and the haughty will be humbled. 
He will cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Lebanon, of course, is known for its mighty cedar trees. God is coming with an axe to do some work to chop down these trees. Now we know the context for Isaiah chapter 11. So when we open chapter 11, uh, we just read all the trees are chopped down. And now in chapter 11, there's the promise. There shall come forth a branch, a rod from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. Now, because of her idolatry, Israel has been cut down to the stumps. Israel has been cut down to the roots. But God is not gonna leave her like that. That's not his intention. He's not going to leave her a, a stripped forest, bare. A new tree is going to spring up. I'm sure you've been walking through a wooded area before you've been hiking, and you see one of these trees that fall down, and then like three more trees grow up out of the stump. Have you ever seen that? Or something grows out of the side, and it's like, where, how long are those going to stand? That's, that's amazing. Isaiah describes this branch who grows up out of the fallen tree, who grows up out of the stump. He's the anointed one. The spirit of Yahweh rests on him. He fears Yahweh. He has clear judgment and he acts in righteousness. This is how Isaiah describes him. And what is the result of his ministry? What is the result of his rule? Let me pick it up in verse 6, which uh, Tim read just a few minutes ago. Uh, verse 6 of chapter 11. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb... The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. What is all this talking about? What, what is this a vision of? What is this referencing? Animals, you know, are always references to people in the Bible. The animal goes through the sacrificial liturgy on behalf of the worshiper. When, uh, when you read the law, don't muzzle the ox that, that treads out the grain. Well, it's talking about ox, but it's also talking about people, right? Don't boil the kid in his mother's milk. Okay, that may have something to do with animals, but that is a law against cruelty to, to people. That's a law forbidding cruelty to, to people in, in its application. Animals always represent and are talking about people, and especially animals in the law are always talking about people. Clean animals represent the holy people. What, what is characteristic of clean land animals, clean mammals that you can eat? There are two things that are significant about them that God points out over and over. They have hooves and they chew cud. They have hooves. What does that mean? Well, they've got little shoes that are built into their feet. They don't stand on the cursed dirt with their bare feet. They, they have shoes, and, and they're always chewing. They chew the cud. They chew, chew, chew over their food, just as God commands his people to chew on his word, to meditate on his word. So in this vision in Isaiah, we have these gentle, clean animals grouped together with the unclean animals. We also have predators and prey, and they're all getting along. Just as John the Baptist brought together locust and wild honey, just as uh, uh, he brought together the camel's hair and the leather belt, so this rod of Jesse unifies the clean animals and the unclean animals. And now today, there's no separation in the animals, right? The whole earth is sanctified and redeemed. All animals are clean. He also turns the predator into a pet. 
He says even the snakes are safe to be played with. The, the brood of vipers, they're not dangerous anymore. Now, is this a vision that Isaiah gives perhaps about some kind of future restoration of animals in the new heavens and new earth someday? Maybe, but it seems that the primary context is Jews and Gentiles getting along and being incorporated under the, the, the tree, the new branch, the new tree. And just so we don't miss it, verse 10, he says, in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. So you see this picture of a great desert oasis with this beautiful tree and this watering place where all the animals come together. Jew and Gentile, clean and unclean, come and rest under its shade. He is the productive tree. He is the healthy tree. He is the, he's the sturdy, glorious oak. Psalm 72, which we read together very briefly, Psalm 72 carries right along in the flow with all of these themes. The king's son, Psalm 72 says, the king's son brings justice. He breaks the oppressor in pieces. The righteous flourish as he has dominion from sea to sea. And all the great kings of the Gentiles come and offer him gifts. All the nations shall serve him. So try to pull all this together. John the Baptist comes and he talks about axes being laid to the root of trees and a new people being raised up. John incorporates the world of the Jew and the Gentile in himself. Isaiah before John talked about axes being laid to trees and a new branch growing out of the stump. And in and under this new tree, Jew and Gentile are pulled together. So what does Paul talk about in our epistle reading in Romans 15? One of the themes of Romans is the relationship of the new covenant to the old covenant and the incorporation of the Gentile people into God's plan for the world, God's plan of redemption. One scholar calls Romans 15 uh, the hallelujah chorus of uh, the epistle to the Romans because here at the end of the epistle, Paul rejoices in all that God has accomplished in not just saving the children of Abraham, but in saving all of the nations. He starts this little section that we heard with a benediction and a prayer that we would all be like-minded, that we would all Jew and Gentile alike glorify God with one mind and one mouth. He commands them all to receive each other. And then he sings, Paul sings in the text out of 2 Samuel and the Psalms and Deuteronomy. He sings the eternal plan of God to save all the nations. Paul's point is that bringing in the nations, bringing in the Gentiles has never been plan B. Jesus didn't come and try to get something to started with his people. They rejected him and he said, well, you know, I, I, guess, I guess we need to try this Gentile thing now because this isn't working out. From the very beginning, God's plan has been to bring in all the nations. And then Paul wraps this up with a summary of what we just read in Isaiah. Paul quotes Isaiah 11, there shall be a root of Jesse and he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. So they're reading this morning from the epistles with Paul says, the things that were written before were written for your learning. You are to hear these things. You are to understand and, and learn what God has done in the past. And at the end of that section, he has another prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in the hope of by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says you persevere in believing. You don't behave like the trees that were cut down. Back in chapter 11 in Romans, 
Paul compares his audience to branches that have been grafted onto the tree. Remember, the natural branches have been broken off because of unbelief. And then Paul lays down a warning in chapter 11. He says, you don't be haughty, you grafted on branches. If he would break off the natural branches, what makes you think he won't break you off too? If God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. So continue in faithfulness. Layering these texts together, we see very stiff warnings from Paul and Isaiah and John the Baptist, the warning that we must not presume upon God's mercies. We must not assume that God is going to put up with our nonsense and with our rebellion. As Paul says, the things that were written before were written for your learning. How many times has he brought the ax to the roots of trees? He will come and do it again. That's the message. He will come again in judgment. So if you want to have life, you must repent and bear good fruit. Align yourself with the one who is doing the chopping before he starts using his ax. Back to the gospel reading to finish where we started. John the Baptist and his, his rebuke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What was this behavior that, that they were so known for? Why were they rotten trees? Why, why did they get such a stiff response from John the Baptist? When we study the Gospels, it's almost as if the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are, are like this caricature. You know, they, they just stand in for everything we don't like. <laughs> they're, they're just, you know, they, they stand in for everything we don't like about other denominations or other religious groups or, or other Christians we disagree with. In all the children's Bibles, the Pharisees have these kind of gray scowls. You know, they have the you know, serious faces and the gray, dark clothing. They're the bad guys in, in the Gospels and in our imaginations. The truth is that the Pharisees were, in fact, the conservatives. They stood for Jewish orthodoxy. Now, the Sadducees were theological liberals who sold out to the politicians. And I'm sure it caused the Pharisees a great deal of frustration to be lumped together with the Sadducees all the time. No, we're not Pharisees and Sadducees. They're very different from us. We have these significant differences with them. But Matthew lumps them together. Matthew lumps together the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and, and John lumps them together in his rebuke. So what, what these, these, these theological conservatives of, of the day, what were their hallmark typical behaviors that warranted such harsh warnings. Why did John the Baptist say, you're a brood of vipers and Jesus is coming with an ax to chop you down? You're rotten trees. What, 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 what warranted this? Well, if we were to try to summarize a few of their attitudes and behaviors, we would say, well, one, they were more concerned with an appearance of holiness than with any kind of reality of faithfulness. They were more concerned with keeping up appearances than actual obedience to God. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. Like, they look really nice on the outside. And if you saw, if you've ever seen sarcophagi in the Middle East, they've got these very ornate exteriors. But what's inside? Rot and corruption. And Jesus says, you're like that. He says, you clean the outside of the dish and the inside is not clean. But that's okay with you. You're okay. Just as long as the presentation is all right. Just as long as you look pulled together so that all men can see you and praise you and be in awe of your holiness, that's all that you worry about. It's just perception for you. You, you only cared about perception. And of course, that's a big problem. And this leads to a great deal of hypocrisy. That's certainly another thing that they were known for. 
When the outside is just a wallpaper over a perverse and twisted reality, you start to lead a double life. You have to keep nodding your head and saying words that sound holy, while the reality is, is your mind and your heart and your behavior are a wreck. And this is something else Paul hits in Romans. Uh, Paul says, you preach that men shouldn't steal, but you steal. You preach, don't commit adultery, but you commit adultery. And, and Paul says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles among you because of you. The, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Oh, that would, I would melt into a puddle if I heard that, right? The name of God is blasphemed because of me? Yes, because of your behavior. Your hypocrisy brings shame to the name of God. That's what Paul says to the Romans. Jesus calls them hypocrites because you make long prayers and you go devour women's houses. So there's this, there's this play of, of keeping up appearances. There's this hypocrisy where we say one thing, we do another. This is characteristic of the Pharisees. And another thing was that they had this tyrannical, oppressive approach to their own man-made standards. God's law is comprehensive. God's law is transformative. God's law is powerful. But for the Pharisees, it wasn't enough. They added rigors and disciplines and requirements, things that are heavy-handed and burdensome, burdens that they were happy to lay on other people. Trying to be holier than God and more righteous than God, they waged war on other people using their own expectations as weapons of guilt manipulation. They had their own definitions of righteousness, which they leveraged. And what Jesus says, you're actually shutting up the kingdom of God. You're shutting up the kingdom of heaven against men. Your religion, Jesus said this. He said, your religion is turning your disciples into twice the sons of hell that you are. These are the kinds of things that John rebukes them for. And these are not trifling matters. These are not just differences of opinion. John says, these behaviors are satanic. You brood of vipers, you baby snakes, you sons of your father, the devil. This is the stuff that makes you a snake. These are the rotten trees. And John says, Jesus is coming with an ax and he's gonna chop them down to the root. But do we have anything in common with these religious elites? Are we more concerned about keeping up appearances than the reality? Would we rather bury sins, duct tape over them, forget about them, rather than expose them and confront them and deal with them? We, we have this default sense that if we just push things down and we don't deal with them, then we avoid conflict, we avoid shame, we avoid danger. Has that ever worked ever in the history of anything? Has that ever worked? Has a cover-up ever turned out not to be a colossal scandal? When we're more concerned about the appearance than the reality, we put ourselves at risk of greater judgment. We also fail to realize that often doing what is right is not gonna have the appearance uh, of something that everyone's gonna appreciate. You can do what is right, but it can look all wrong to an ignorant, unbelieving audience. And if, if all you're worried about is pleasing the wrong audience instead of God, you're, you're headed for a disaster. I can name a dozen examples of that, but, uh, but I could point to one thing that, that to an ignorant, unbelieving audience looks terrible, but is in fact glorious. And that's, that's the cross, right? The death of Jesus on the cross was the most right and powerful and amazing and beautiful act ever. But to a superficial person, it looks bad and wrong and ugly. You see, if you're more concerned about keeping up appearances than working on the reality, you'll never take up your cross. Because crosses are ugly. 
Crosses don't look right. Crosses don't match your shoes. Crosses don't match your lifestyle. If you're more concerned about appearances and reality, you won't, you won't take them up. Do we have anything in common with these Pharisees that John was so put out by? Do we have anything in common with these rotten trees? Are we hypocrites? Do we live double lives? Do we preach holiness publicly and then secretly engage in our little idolatries? Do we boldly put on a face of stern righteousness in public and then go home at night and stoke the fires of our sins? Do we also, like the Pharisees, have our lists of expectations of what holiness, politeness, faithfulness, success looks like? And do we leverage our expectations over other people, adding spiritual requirements in such a way that we actually turn people away from Jesus rather than toward him? See, these are the behaviors that Jesus comes to condemn to death. Yes, idolatry. Yes, adultery. Yes, all kinds of fornication. Yes, theft. Yes, murder. Yes, all of these things. But also these things. These are among the things that Jesus comes to judge and destroy. And how dare we keep on life support the things that God has condemned to death. These are all trees marked out for his acts. And what we're called to do is to find these rotten branches in us and to stand back and say, Jesus, that one, I need that one cut out. And this one right here, Wield your axe. Please cut. I don't want it anymore. Cut that out for me. Destroy it in me. Put it to death. It's killing me. That's what we're called to do. That's what the work of repentance is. Now, we're looking forward to Christmas and the season of Advent. We're preparing for the celebration of Christmas. And this is not normally the kind of cozy stuff that you, you hear when you look forward to the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It's, it's really easy to get on board with the celebration of a, of a birth of a baby. That's really fun. Who can object to that? Babies aren't threatening. Babies don't ask anything of you. But this talk of judgment and this talk of repentance seems to clash with that. But the fact is, that's in fact what it's all about. The coming of the one whom Jesus, uh, the, the coming of the one whom John proclaims is the same one that was born in a major. And he didn't come just to be sweet and cute. He came to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, as Isaiah said. In fact, in a much better way, that's much more comforting to me. And that is, that is much more stabilizing to me, to know that, that Jesus is the conqueror of all that destroys us. And he doesn't put up with any of it. Jesus is the destroyer of all that destroys us. Jesus is the eater of the eater. Jesus is the consumer of the consumer. As John consumed the locust, Jesus consumes all that destroys. Isn't, isn't that much better? Isn't that much more hopeful? Isn't that much more promising than celebrating the coming of a king who would just kind of let things go? The stories of conquest in the Old Testament are meant to be encouraging to us. Jesus doesn't let death and destruction and terror and chaos, he doesn't let darkness and ignorance live. He puts them all to death. And just as he came, wielding Assyria as an axe, just as he came swinging Rome as an axe against Jerusalem. So he continues to bring his axe and judge the world. He is coming in judgment. He comes today to us. He comes to the world. He comes to the nations. He is coming again to judge one day. He comes with an axe. Get behind the one with the axe or you'll be in front of it. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we praise you for this Jesus who comes to not let anything destructive and rotten uh, exist, but to destroy all of it so that we can have life, so that we can have blessing, so that we can thrive. Father, we uh, are, are grateful and thankful for a king who, who doesn't let uh, darkness exist, who doesn't let it perpetuate. So, Father, we, we pray that you would kill the rotten parts in us, that you would wield the axe and chop out the parts of us that need cutting out so that we can have life, so that we can have blessing and health. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.